We can edit this pause. (laughs) (laughs) Kia ora everyone and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is episode 34 and we're delighted to have on the podcast today, Linda Simmons. Uh, Welcome Linda. Kia ora koutou, thank you for having me. Linda, um, we're really delighted to have you with us. Um, you're an award-winning architect, a long-time educator, and of course one of the co-founders of um, Architecture and Women. Um, but you, more recently, you've uh, just stepped down from a post um, at New Zealand Architecture New Zealand, where you were a columnist. Um, and one of the um, recent columns that you wrote about was drawing and uh, in particular the death of the section, which uh, sparked Matt's curiosity and and a a bunch of us here. Would you like to talk to us about why um, drawing is so important to your practice? Oh, great. Um, Yeah, drawing, I just just love the connection between drawing and thinking. So that kind of permeates most areas of my life um, and has done right since since my student days, actually. So uh, I just really enjoy that the, the way we draw, not what we draw, so I'm not talking about representation here, I'm talking about the, the, the process or the method, the way we draw um, reflects very much the spatial thinking that we're doing. And then I look for, in my education life, um, I look for ways to um, communicate with students to develop their ways of thinking through their drawing and their drawing style. So I have um, particular kind of drawing teaching methods that I that I do at the university. I should probably mention there that I'm um, part, half of my life is as a um, professional teaching fellow at the Auckland University School of Architecture and Planning um, and my role there extends to studio teaching, thesis supervision, um, I do a history seminar and I do a professional, um, uh, professional practice as well with Bill Mackay. I've heard the panels are extremely popular. They're wonderful, especially panel three with Arch on it. Yes, yes. Um, So your article, this article, so there's so many things I'm kind of curious about. The subject matter is really important to me personally. I definitely relate to. uh, It's almost a lament, right, for the loss Mm. of that technique. But also, maybe before we go there... um, What's it like being an opinion writer in the architecture field yeah. in New Zealand? Right. Well, that was very new to me. So, um, and that that has been a huge learning curve, and one that I just loved. I absolutely loved. I know I've just stepped down after two years um, by choice, and it was it was a difficult decision to make to leave it. But I felt like I'd I'd said quite a bit. I felt quite exposed actually, and um, I'd said I'd said what was important to me and I felt like it was someone else's turn so I really wanted to pass the baton but having said that um, loved every minute and it's quite a different discipline Mm. than design drawing teaching all of the other areas of my life advocacy Um, it's it's a different discipline and I I really learned a lot as I felt my way through it yeah um, incredible privilege to be given a platform like that yeah and literally talk about what you are passionate about yeah. which I found I found my way through it's interesting and I think you mentioned it in one of your columns that New Zealand possibly because of its size and the collegiality of the profession tends to lack a really robust critical culture um, and I was also thinking about that in kind of global terms where you see in big media organisations they're laying off their architecture critics and the whole space in a sense is dwindling 
And I wonder if you felt a temptation or an obligation to step into that critical space while you were a columnist, or if it's something you preferred to work around? Like, did you ever want to do a column about a particular building, for example? Um, I didn't, no. And I think the reason for that is that my personal interests are more around advocacy and the profession itself. I'm mm-hmm. very passionate about um, if, if, if we're churning out thousands of students every year into the profession, I really am passionate that it's a good place for them to go. And from where I sit, it, it, it needs a lot of fixing. <laughs> There's a lot of huge gaping areas that need help. Um, and so, so that's where... So I think I ended up writing three or four columns on kind of equity issues or... Um, well, yeah, those sorts of areas, rather than a particular critique. Um, I think the the critique area is really tough too. As a as, as a registered architect, obviously, we've got ethics mm-hmm. um, where we where we can't criticise each other. If even if we wanted to, um, you can critique work, but um, that yeah, that that's a, a more delicate area to negotiate. I think. I didn't realise that actually. So that's part of. Your agreement on part of the code of ethics. Yes. I, I believe the wording is you're not allowed to unfairly yes. criticise yes. an architect's work. Is yes. that? Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But I think that's enough of a discouragement that as a result we just don't we do, do any. Yeah, I, I <laughs> almost. Think, yeah, and I do. I don't think it's that small community thing. I think that the strength of, in New Zealand is that we are so collegial. We really do not see each other as competitors, which I think is lovely because when you travel around the world. There's a lot of architectural communities around there that are very competitive. Um, I, I really enjoy that collegiality, but I do think that that's part of that lack of criticism um, developing because, you know, you, you literally will be critiquing somebody who you hold in very high regard. <laughs> yeah. um, and, but, but, but really to answer your question, it's more my areas of passion yes. um, are more around education um, and equity in the profession. And it may be, from what you're saying, that those issues are more pressing for the profession anyway than critical culture. Um, I, th- I think a good, good critical culture is <laughs> essential as well. <laughs> I just don't think that I'm, I'm the person to step into that yeah. area. Yeah. Did you feel your writing was having an effect? Because I used to write more not necessarily critically, um, and I don't do so much anymore. And part of what has discouraged me from doing so is that I feel like that um, marketplace is the wrong word, but the space for presenting ideas and having them discussed is so cluttered now. Um, And people's attention spans are shorter and they're also quite time-starved. Do you feel like um, your opinions and your thoughts were heard and discussed in a way that you would have liked them to be? That's really interesting because I have no idea how to measure it. Mm, yeah, uh, there was subjective. a little bit of feedback. Um, so this drawing um, article, mm. for example, got the most feedback, um, Yeah, which I did find interesting because either people were hesitant to talk about the other topics or th- this was just the one that you can kind of relate to in, in practice perhaps a little mm. bit more. Um, but 
the, yeah, so there was a lot more kind of just general feedback on that one. So I knew that one was hitting home. There was also a, a follow-up piece by Sean Flanagan in the block, um, which was really interesting and I was very honoured that he decided that it, it, it needed that follow-up. Um, I did feel a slightly a slightly misunderstood in parts of it, but, um, but ultimately we came to the same uh, kind of conclusion around drawing thinking and um, design through drawing types of, uh, yeah, to process work. Um, but so that was a real honour. And so I knew that something had happened there. Mm. Um, apart from the odd email you get from architects around the country, you really can't measure what people are talking about um, in result of, of what you're saying. I still felt it was worthwhile even without, without feeling the feedback. Is it because yeah. there's still something satisfying about clarifying your thoughts through the process yes. of writing that you kind of understand better where you stand yes. on things? Yes. Or you can unpack an issue that way? Yes, very mm. much, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Do you think that the um, spaces for feedback and conversation have diminished over time, or do you think that that's just... Because another way, you, in fact, your final article for, or for Architecture New Zealand was on the importance of conversation yeah. hmm. um, and talking about architectural ideas. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's diminished. I think people like you are making architectural conversations literally in podcasts. That's amazing. So it's changed format. Um, I think that Chris Barton was really courageous in including opinion columns um, into the magazine because it's it, it's not been a typical format. Um, so that was one way of, I guess, bringing conversation um, forward. I do recall um, I was teaching at Unitech in the 90s and I do recall having a, a panel discussion and saying then that there's a lack of critique in New Zealand um, uh, architecture and, and journals or publications and that all we had were letters to the editor at that point. Mm. So I even felt it then and you could argue there's more now, in fact, mm. because of, um, I don't know, is there any conversation in social media? But there's podcasts like mm. this. Yeah, to, there's certainly lots of people who can quickly post a picture of a building and go, this is shit. Yeah, yeah. And, and get 65 yeah. likes. Yeah. So there's a flattening of the conversation yes. in that sense and yeah. there's just more of it and there's arguably, it's harder to differentiate the volume between a really informed, considered, researched, nuanced piece and a brain fart because mm. they're all kind of in your intellectual mindscape yeah. competing now, yeah. more so. Well, you could argue that Twitter threads are kind of ongoing conversations in some ways. Like, there's one that goes on, possibly among the people I follow, about urbanism and about density and about yep. the way housing is placed. Some of it informed, some of it grossly uninformed, but it kind of all rumbles on in its own untitled Urbanism fashion. Twitter is quite good. New Zealand urbanism Twitter is quite good at the moment. That might be a subject for another episode. Yeah, it's pretty lively. But it does lead me to something I wanted to ask you about, Linda, and that is the kind of... We were talking about laments in terms of drawing, but I also wondered about the status, and I don't mean that in a um, dumb way, of architecture as a profession, and that people sometimes talk about um, the central role of architects in city shaping and buildings, and they're kind of the, the people that mayors and politicians would call on to sort out problems. Um, 
in some ways and and certain type of architect often um, but that doesn't seem to happen so much and I wondered what your view was on whether the profession has been marginalized or if it's just the way society's changed around it that means it's performing a similar role just in a less kind of public way yeah I think I think that um, so, so we're in urban issues now which is slightly outside of my field <laughs> <laughs> but they're still architectural but, yeah no definitely mm. yeah so um, uh, so we were just talking about the success for example of a of a recent building um, the Britomart Hotel and the, the way that that architecture has had, had impact on an urban space so I would actually argue that we're in uh, that we're doing quite well in places mm-hmm. in, in those regards um, not so well in other places um, the role of the architect here there's a there's a real um, there's a real well wouldn't it be great if there was a government architect again but then the question then falls to and well who would that be and then you're back into that sort of master scenario again. Mm. Yeah, which might be good and it might not be good. So I don't think I've got any any kind of sway in that, um, in my opinion, on that one. But it's a profession you've stayed engaged with, not only in the way you work and teach, but also you've been an advocate for change within that profession, which mm. just for starters makes you seem like an extraordinarily patient person in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's all by mistake. I guess are you seeing the change you want to see? Um, Well, well, okay, so so one of my areas of passion is is, um, the fact that the profession is based on a, a traditional structure which is no longer relevant to contemporary society and that it needs to hurry up and change for its own benefit, in fact. Um, but the resistance that you feel um, is generally that, oh, there's a resistance that, no, the way we've been doing it is just fine, thanks. And the practices that have that resistance are going to suffer and we saw them suffer in the COVID lockdown. Mm-hmm. So. I saw the lockdown period as being a wonderful, wonderful um, nationwide experiment in what we have been, we, when I say we, Architecture and Women New Zealand, have been calling for, for for a very long time. So, and three, in fact, three of the columns that I wrote were about that very thing, and then it happened in front of our eyes. And you saw the um, practices that were adaptable, and flexible and managed very well and there are some practices that didn't manage so well because we're doing okay in our traditional and dare I say it patriarchal structure um, we're, we're doing fine things and suddenly they weren't doing so fine because that adaptability wasn't there so what we learned um, from the lockdown was that um, flexibility works and um, reduced hours can work and the dedication of staff is still there, uh, even when they're not in the office, <laughs> um, which these are things that working parents have known for decades and have been doing for decades. And in fact, there are working models of um, part-time architects who are also raising small children um, that the rest of the, the profession could learn from. Mm. Yeah. So the change you wanted to see started to happen a bit more because of COVID in yes. that sense. Yeah, interesting. If it doesn't stick, I will be so surprised. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's madness to go back to the 
traditional nine to five, full time, every every staff member full time. Mm. It's madness, madness on a mental health level. It's madness on on just so many levels. I think the other thing about flexibility, aside from all the kind of trying to actually make it work with families, or you know, if you're a caregiver, all of those other kind of complex things that everybody has going on in their lives, is that actually as a creative profession, sometimes you need to be elsewhere for your mind to recharge, yes. to be productive again. Mm. You know, I, I just read the most beautiful quote yesterday by, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to remember his name, but he's just been awarded um, an art prize in London. Um, so whoever was in the news, I, I read it in The Guardian. He literally said, at the beginning of my career, I worked six days a week, and um, at 10 years ago, I, I now come into studio Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and my production has doubled. Mm. <laughs> um, that does not surprise no. me at all. No. Um, and and sometimes also it's really important to have time for ideas to, to percolate and, and so on. Because I think with architecture, you never really turn it off. It's always no, no, that's simmering right. around there at some level. Yeah. But, but you're not necessarily productive if you're in front of a screen or kind of trying to push something out in a, you know, at a in your journal or your drawing or whatever sometimes the thinking is to, uh, space is just as important yeah so that that kind of comes down to control and trust doesn't it <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> maybe the way we kind of measure productivity and yeah, outputs yes. and things too right because that's interesting that that I have to look that up and see that quote, find that person, read about them. But, you know, have, effectively halving your hours, doubling your outputs mm. or outcomes. Well, or there's also all the, the Perpetual <coughs> Guardian has done the four-day yeah. week and they found their productivity were increased yeah. mm, and things like that. So it, it's, yeah. But we've been, if you talk to decades worth of, of architects who have been raising children at the same time as doing work, they, they will talk about focused work time at work as opposed to I go to work five days a week mm. and when you've actually got a small window of work that is that's targeted and focused and it's more productive yeah mm. talking about balance you do many things how does how do the different things you do feed each other has that been a conscious? Completely, mm. yeah. Very conscious that I've, I've, I've designed my life um, it's been painful and it's been difficult, but what I found, um, so uh, children all grown up now, at university or beyond, um, but in, in the young years, what I, my partner and I um, made a pact that we would share everything 50-50 so that both of our careers could um, track along. And we found out very quickly and very abruptly that two careers stop when you go part-time, <laughs> not just one. So the learning in that is that it's not gender-based, it's actually part-time based. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you say you're a part-time worker, people diminish your status. And you do not move. You, where, whatever field you're in, mm -hmm. you don't move. So it's like a withdrawal, essentially. or People take it as a signal of withdrawal. Yes, mm. exactly. Yeah. So there's this weird thing around dedication. So, um, so, so we, after a year of... <laughs> stalling and recognising this and we talked about it and I, I literally had to give in. I had to say you can go and get a full time job and I was so resentful. I really, really was resentful and for five years I was resentful mm. um, because his career was beautifully um, back on track and I was just 
you know, mm. deadlined, a deadline for possibly 10 years. Mm. So anyway, that's fine. But what I recognised at the after that 10 years is that my full-time status was, was moving in nicely. Mm. Um, and the promise I made to myself was not, oh, that's a terrible thing that you had to go part-time. It was, I saw it as a gift. So suddenly I had the gift of part-time status and still being productive, still producing buildings, still teaching, still writing, still drawing. Mm. So once I worked out, in fact, that my part-time status was a gift, I promised myself I'd hold on to it forever and talk about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So that I'm trying to destigmatize the the term part-time. So it's called reduced hours now. But if you don't mind me saying so, it sounds like the different things you're doing add up to much more than full-time mm. oh, oh way more yeah <laughs> absolutely so my where's this part-time work, gift yeah. now <laughs> the work-life balance just went straight out <laughs> yeah no no you're right when i was doing architecture and women my yeah that's a lot of time yeah, mm. that, yeah. Mm. No, no 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 without a doubt um so i've been disciplining myself to actually get back to a, <laughs> a proper part a proper full-time workload mm-hmm. as opposed part-time. to a one and a half Mm. And that doesn't count the child rearing. No, of course yeah. not. Mm. But um, yeah, so I see uh, flexible and reduced hours as a gift that can be worked into um, architectural practice structures, and they'd be foolish not to do it. Tough and a big term, yeah. Can be, but I think that I absolutely agree that the. The lockdowns, they, they forced things to happen. Yes. And you're either well positioned or not. But also that in order for them to stick, in order for the value of what you've been saying for so long to really truly be seen, it has this, you know, I think it has this double value. Those who came through it positively and saw flexibility not just as a necessity but a strength, those who were able to come through it that way and go, actually, it was actually our flexibility that got us mm. through this. Yes. Um, and then all of the subsidiary benefits that come with it around retention, satisfaction, yeah. uh, productivity. Yeah. Um, it, it all collided perfectly to um, basically put them put those big practices through a drafting gate, those ones that either kind of came through and, you know, we, we shaped our policies a bit, but we were, we were ready to go. But I think the reasons we had flexibility were not necessarily the reasons you might have advocated for them. No. But now the benefits that have stemmed from them mm. help, help consistently kind of recalibrate that. Yeah. And then there were some that were drafted through that creaked and were not able to do it. And sometimes that was for technical reasons and it was probably for everyone going through it, cultural reasons, or big changes around yeah. that. And the sorts of discussions you have about that teeth sucking of what does it mean? And, you know, you'll be so familiar with all of these. But um, I, it will stick. I'm certain it will, and it has. Um, and, yeah, I guess I'd just, I'd just say to those in bigger practices, seeing it as an actual, as a strength, as an asset, mm. is the real key. Mm. You know, when I mean, you can still win and deliver work through those lockdowns and accommodate all those things. You learn a lot about your people that you didn't previously know. About their living conditions, right, right. Yeah. about mm. just the things that are in their life yes. that aren't, um, they just, they, they just blurs somewhat when you move into that territory as opposed to when they're just coming in. I learned about how much travel so many of my colleagues do, mm. um, some doing three mm. hours a day. 
and um, you know an hour and a half each way and working from home one day a week gives them back those three hours mm-hmm. yeah and I got glared at for saying don't give those don't give those hours back yeah. to work yeah <laughs> those are your hours you know like use those hours yeah. but um yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think it has stuck. Yeah, I think what happened is that it took the conversation away from a gender-based conversation. And as soon as something's not gender-based, it actually gets action. <laughs> <laughs> because if it's a problem for mothers or women, yeah. then it just doesn't get action because it's deemed as not important. So as soon as it became um, not gender-based and everybody was was implicated, things have to happen. It's mm. as simple as that. Mm. You say that without sounding furious. I would be furious. <laughs> I was kind of furious as you were saying it for you. Furi- and for everybody. Furious decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested, Linda, in what got you into architecture in the first place. What kind of lit that fire of curiosity for you and how the, um, the profession or the way you've arranged your life around architecture has matched those early expectations you might have had. Mm. I was always going to go to Elam. So I was on a, on a track to art school. Um, that's what was privileged in my family. So art is the top of the um, pyramid, if you like, of the creative disciplines. And that's where I was heading. And I had a wonderful um, teacher at school, Mate Zume, who um, saw that I, I was basically doing sculpture. So that was, that was my field. And um, it, she collated, she, sort of teamed up with my physics teacher and they they sort of forced me to go to architecture, <laughs> apply for architecture <laughs> school between the two of them. Um, so that was, that was that side of it. My father's also an architect and so I've grown up um, around amazing buildings. I've grown up in an amazing house and um, that has got to be permeated in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing there is that I'd, once I did apply to go to architecture school because I decided, well, I know what I'm hitting if I go to Elam and I don't know what I'm hitting at all if I go to architecture school, so let's give that a go. So it was more of a, I'll do it for one year, see if I like it kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't tell my father. So, because uh, I knew it would disappoint him. <laughs> so, and it did. Uh, so so I, I went along to see if I liked it and I loved it. Yeah. Did it live up to my expectations? I think that I've always just thought you just keep working, you just keep doing what you love and everything will shape around you and that's that's the way I've treated it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's and worked in that sense? It definitely has worked, but mm. as I said before, it's taken a lot of effort and a lot of focus um, to control that, to, to, to actually control who I work for, why, and, and to shape that. Yes. to make it fit mm. yeah does that mean saying no to a lot of things yes yeah yeah yes it has said yes and that must be difficult it has been but i i think that you know i've said yes to too many things too yeah. so it's been an amazing i have an amazing variety in my life and i feel very thankful for that yeah, yeah. There was one point, um, once I, I always sort of warned students that seven year, I call it the seven year honeymoon period, um, you graduate, you work hard, you do all this stuff, and then around seven years out, you sort of start questioning architecture and thinking, and your place in architecture. For me, I found it really painful. I found architecture was not fulfilling. I found it slightly boring, which um, talks about the full-time week a little bit. And I started looking for something else. And I was literally um, 
I recall the day that I was looking through the uh, university calendar because I was going to reapply for art history papers so that I could go and do museum work. That was my next focus. And um, the phone rang and it was Tony Van Raat offering me a job teaching at Unitech. And that literally, Sarah Treadwell had given him my name and um, that changed the course of things for me. So it allowed me again to do that part time, to do that lots of fingers and lots of pies and that keeps me interested in architecture. So that kind of saved me for architecture, I think. Mm. And you're still teaching, so that's obviously... Love teaching. Yeah. 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 That, that, that is actually where the passion is. Mm. Um, I love making as well. Mm. So I love building sites. I love being on the building site. So I, I haven't been able to leave architecture practice mm. fully. I still have to, to, to design. I outsource documentation. And then I've got to be involved on the building site again because that's also where my passion sits. Mm. But the teaching is, is really um, because conversations. So when you say there's not enough conversations, perhaps in the profession, it's like, well, I talk all day. Yeah. <laughs> I have the luxury of talking about design and about the impact of architecture on societies every day mm. with amazing young minds mm. who challenge me always. So I just think, yeah, I'm lucky. Mm, in that regard. This might seem like a weird question, but um, do, do you think design can be taught? <laughs> That's a hard question. Of course I have to say yes, because why else would I be teaching it? You don't have to verbalise you're working, but... <laughs> um, but I am curious no, because there's a, an ongoing debate and, and you know, we, we talk a lot too just about generally the privileged position that design has in the whole slice of what yes. of what mm. the vocation is. Yes. And, you know, there'll be those in camps who, you know, like what is talent? Yeah. And then what can be taught? And can you teach design? And can you make someone a better designer while they are learning design? Uh, well, you can, yeah, they can grow. Versus just grinding yeah. the hours yeah. and kind of getting the calluses and just actually doing more of it so that you also yeah. then get better and refine it. Yeah. I'd have to say yes because I've watched so many amazing students um, grow literally mm. in front of you over time. Mm. So um, they're doing something. They're, doing, they're in a place that's facilitating their growth. Uh, so the education is definitely there. I don't think that there is a way to teach design and there are a lot of educators who do, so they will be disagreeing with me. About um, method, about... About method right. of teaching, <coughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So so I think one of the strengths at the um, Auckland School is that they offer many, many tutors and many different kinds of briefs and different kind of projects and the student can actually navigate their way through in their five years there or three years if they're doing a BAS. So um, they can actually find the, the teaching methods that suit them. So what it means is that we we as tutors are actually free to really specialise our mm. teaching methods, which I have done, and that is the drawing methodology um, that I use. And I use quite specific um, exercises for students to, to learn different things. Um, and were so that's one and then I, I kind of set them free and they do whatever they want with those exercises so there's this kind of um, combination of restriction and freedom if you like or prescription um, and but there are other 
you know, the next person will teach it a completely different way and the next person will teach it in a completely different mm. way. And I think that's very valuable for students. Mm. Yeah, so, so I guess the answer to your question is there's multiple um, options for teaching design, but they won't all be suitable. Mm. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that description. That that um, that latitude means that um, different tutors will develop more refined and specialised ways to teach, yeah. and then the students can steer their way through it. Yeah. So, by the time the episode comes out, hopefully our keen listeners will have um, read their homework and read this <laughs> famous um, opinion piece that got so much feedback. But I wonder if you could, because I'd love to hear you describe just, you know, as quickly as you can what the kind of thesis of that was, um, what that piece was. And I'd love to then talk more about this particular passion that we all have for drawing. Okay. Um, um, oh. And if you, if you haven't done your memory? homework and you want to look it up, it's just called oh. <laughs> um, the disappearing plan and section. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that that really is about my my love for this um, the connection between drawing and thinking. So, the, the the what we what we choose to how we choose to draw something is absolutely intrinsically tied to the way we're designing that thing. So, um, again, the, the legacy that is the Sarah Treadwell legacy. I she she taught me that she yeah. Um, and, and the simple way to explain that is if you are um, prioritizing form making for whatever reason, then you would choose an axonometric to discover and manipulate that form um, because that's objectified and separated from, from you. But if you're actually concerned with light and smell and texture, for example, if you're designing a religious space of some sort, then those atmospheric things are prioritized over the form making, so you would choose a different method of drawing. So a different type of drawing, I should say, even to the materials. Um, but they, these both might be digital. I'm not talking about hand drawing versus, mm -hmm. yeah, that's not the conversation. I'm assuming it's all digital. Or if it's hand drawn or created, then it's scanned in and then manipulated digitally. Um, yeah, so, so you've either got an embedded an embedded um, drawing type where you can literally smell or feel the smoke mm. or whatever uh, versus this very clinical kind of objectified um, object, which is why, you know, we use um, uh, axiometrics for furniture design and uh, components of things. Um, so that's just the, the, the general thing. But the thing I love about the section um, as a drawing type is that it combines both of them. So it actually, simultaneously, you can have accuracy and ambiguity, and you can have embedded atmosphere and technical know-how, you know, through the, the, the cut or something. So you've got this lovely, because I think that's what architects do. I think that's our amazing skill. We, we can bring the technical as well as all the social, political, and um, uh, sort of areas of, of our skills, we can also bring the technical or the technic with the qualitative, so quantitative and qualitative. Mm -hmm. We can actually, pretty much the only one in the team that is maintains that, well, the light's going to be doing that across the floor at that particular time of day. No one else is thinking like that, as well as solving the detail to keep the water out. So... That, that's why I love the section. Now, I'm also recognising that current 
students don't think in terms of plans and sections and that I'm part of a um, an era that is changing. Yeah, so the code, so the, the analogy is with music. So mm. some people can read music, some people can't. You can still play music, um, but, but I'm talking about the code for the poetry. Yeah. Uh, I see the plans and sections or the Cartesian kind of thinking as being a code and that that code has changed and that, that current students actually think differently. So do you think that that then affects the quality of the spaces they no, are designing? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I think. I think I'm not making a judgment call mm. on that. I just am making an awareness mm. observation. So um, I couldn't speak more highly of the students mm. that we see and 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 what how they think and what they produce. Um, I'm, but I do know that. A particular type of thinking about space is no longer important to them, and that they think through a movable uh, space is now not a very fluid. Mm. It's far more fluid, um, and the, the the plan and section belongs to a kind of static drawing understanding of space. Yeah, and that the drawings that they're producing now are far more fluid. And I don't mean just fly-throughs. Mm. I, I don't think that's what I'm saying. They, they literally are, are experimenting with their spaces in a fluid way, in a fluid-thinking way. Yeah, I mean, there's something that comes with just the, the ease with which you can position the eye in the space in a model. Like, you'll all remember spending hours setting up your two-point perspective and going, the fuck, it's too high. Like, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Oh, you know, like, a, and I just, you know, but and then you you were literally back to the drawing board, and you yeah. did it again. The ability now yeah. to kind of do that, and you talk about this, you talk about this, you know, what did you, what was the word? Like almost like a kind of just a constant series of still images that you have to almost look away from. Yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating that you talk about them really thinking differently, and you're a better person than I in going. You know, that has just changed and we just kind of moved past it because I'm quite a traditionalist at heart. But I'm trying to remind, to be open-minded to this idea that there is truly a new way of seeing and yeah. coming together and describing. Because ultimately, the drawing is still the output of the representation of the space that has been described. So primarily, it's what's the quality of the space and the mm. experiences that unfold. It's sad to hear a plan in a section described as static because I've seen some that are mm. thrillingly dynamic. Yes. And you can oh, yeah. walk your way through them in a, in a sequence in a way that you can't in the purely digital. It's all laid out in front of you like a scroll. You know, there's a temporal aspect. You can walk your way through a drawing from this will be the first experience, this will follow that, this will follow that. Well, it's very filmic, right? But, yes. Yeah, yeah cartoon book mm, yeah. And, and, and linear. But, um, yeah, you have no doubts that students are still creating work at the, you know, at the highest level. It's vibrant and they it's are. considered and it's resolved in all its dimensions. Yeah, yeah, yep. yep. no, they are, absolutely. Um, what I tend to do is work with them uh, and I kind of force them to take sections and work with, prioritise a section in their digital models. Yeah. So I'm not stopping them working digitally. I'm not talking about doing things by hand. I'm just saying that... Um, if they prioritise the section and take slices as we're moving along, then they start to learn that code that I'm trying to hold on to, mm. that I can see is being lost. Mm. 
and that that section can drive the design decisions as and what I I even go as far as making them not produce any plans because the plan always wins so I try to delay that delay the plan for as long as possible yeah something quite nice about the idea of pausing on a sectional moment you know and and having the time to drill into that space and experience it I mean I've always loved sections because I they convey the feeling of a space to me and, and that I've always found very powerful I'd like to think about I do like to think about buildings from the inside out not just what they look like but how they feel yeah. and so I think the section is a great drawing for that but but you know you're right I mean in the perhaps more filmic experience of architecture there's no reason why that time can't kind of have different paces or you know moments mm. for pause or to ponder a, a particular moment mm. I think the biggest difference for me is so so trying not to be judgmental again but that filmic thing is so powerful and it's also supported through the the social media platforms that we use but it's so powerful what it what you have to recognize though is that it places the single human in as a perspective point and so it tells you that the single individual human is the most important thing mm. and i don't think that that's true fundamentally so i think that the section what that does is it removes the individual human it actually allows you to be at all places at all times mm. or nowhere at all you might even be inhabiting a thick wall in your mind or you're outside and inside at the same time. So for me, the section, that's exactly what you just said. You can actually kind of feel it because you're feeling the whole building. You're not looking at something. Mm. You're so right. I mean, if you pick it, if you look at a section with very thick walls, you actually, when you look at that drawing, feel the weight of them around you in mm. a way that if you're in a kind of a video mm. of that or, a you know, computer projection you might it might not it might not convey that feeling of the materials the weight of them so well mm. because it's now flattened and now some students are going to argue mm. with me that their their way is better and so yeah. that's fine too but yeah. I, but I, yes that's absolutely the fundamental i mean so 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 we we actually experience buildings as groups I know that we're kind of all individuals, but we actually do experience a lot of, especially public buildings, as groups. And I think again, the 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 the, the using multiple perspectives prioritizes the single human just too much. Are you talking about a more elastic view of space? And if so, what happens when that more elastic view meets the harder reality of built form? Ooh, might need to rephrase that a little bit for me, but I, <laughs> so I don't quite... Um, the, the way you're describing it, it seems like that the students you're teaching have this kind of really flexible notion of space and it's kind of moving and shaping in a way that a previous generation might not have expressed it I because see. of the tools they have available. Yeah. And what happens when you meet the inflexible medium of building where you're using timber and other materials? Well, usually they're digital modelling or, digi yeah, sometimes they're they're not, sometimes they're in other sort of softwares like Photoshop and things, but if they're in digital modeling, then they are dealing with the hard stuff at the same time. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so, so it's, 
the fact that there is no singular viewpoint, there's just constant multiple viewpoints right. in, in the digital model. So you can actually be embedded in the space and see the light coming in from above, or you can just see this sort of blocky form form making thing. Mm -hmm. So so you know there's there's amazing potential in the digital world, yes. and they unlock it absolutely. But it still comes down to a we're only looking from one point of view. The software is always designed as if it's from a singular vision, mm -hmm. as opposed to this idea that a section or a plan is, you, you're suddenly like a scanning machine, you know, like you, you're equi equidistant from, mm. from mm. all parts of the building at the same time. So it's a different thinking. Yeah, I get, I get yeah. what you mean. Mm. Do you doodle? As opposed to design drawing. I guess another way to ask it is, you know, what is, what, what kind of drawing do you do? And are there a range of mm. different kinds? Is there the, mm. the drawing for the, just the, you know, the taking a line for a walk? Is there a design? Is there problem solving? Is there descriptive? Is yeah. it all of that? Is it fun? Is it work? Is it both? All, all, is it all indistinguishable? So, yeah, so I what do I do? Yes, I doodle, and but what I tend to do is take um, whatever I've produced, I take cropped versions of, and I make new compositions, mm -hmm. and then I design from those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's one of the teaching methods I use with students. So my version of doodling is not to get no. somewhere, um, because I usually chop up that drawing anyway. So, yeah. Um, can you talk about some of these techniques? And particularly what you think they achieve. So it's one thing to go, well, you know, so we're talking, because I'm really fascinated. I've done a lot of design teaching myself and I have yeah. my own things, which are my yeah. like tools and tricks. That and, and so I'm really interested to hear some of these. You gave one example then. And, you know, um, is it, for example, a generative technique? It's a thing yes. like that will get the students just kind of um, what I used, you know, like a design laxative. It will just generate more things that you can now consider. Is it a honing technique to help them decide the good from the bad? How do you assess good from bad? Is it representational? Is it, you know, all of the different ways? I wonder if you have some yeah. examples. In yeah, you're just asking me to give a one-hour lecture. Oh, really? Okay. Where do I, what's the course number and I'll, um, I'll enroll? Don't bring the PowerPoint. Yeah. No. Um, no, no, but I think... I think the quickest way to answer your question, it is generative. That, it's generative. That is my Primarily style. generative. Yeah. So yeah. it's about getting stuff flowing, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. Um, <coughs> so what I do is I try to get students to understand the difference between what I mentioned before, qualitative and quantitative, and understanding the importance of both. And I believe that architects are so good at both, but quantitative always wins in, at the end of the day, and even in studio. What I mean by that is that we talk about all the sensory stuff, blah, 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 but actually at crypt time, we're just looking at the plans. <laughs> we're looking at plans and sections, ironically. Um, or we're not. Uh, we're looking at lots of perspectives, and um, we're talking about the hard stuff, the stuff, you know, the, the building the, in the end, the quantitative stuff, the stuff that's measurable. And we've let go of the conversations around the quantitative. So all I do is I try to hold on a couple of little methods where I try to hold on to qualitative for a little bit longer in the process. Mm. 
than is than would normally so so for example a lot of students produce these beautiful concept models and go oh it's but it's only a concept model and then they go jump straight into a building mm. and I just think I try to spread out that mm. um, yeah with a series of kind of things so if you if you're able to re- remove representation from things um, and and look at look at maybe an abstract composition for its qualitative components only um, then if you're able to make a model of that then you're suddenly out of I don't know wax and cotton wool or whatever it doesn't matter out of non-architectural hard materials then if you can prove that you've made a quality then you can measure that model go from there to the quantitative and that hardline drawing will look radically different than the one when you did the jump from the concept model because when you do the jump you straighten everything up and you 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 don't keep all the inaccuracies when do you start your drawing tiktok channel because <laughs> <laughs> these are like one minute one minute episodes i think there's an audience there's another job yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what tracks play in the background <laughs> Linda, thank you so much for taking time out of all of the multitude of different things you do uh, (laughs) under your reduced hours regime to come and talk to us today. It's been a really fascinating conversation and so I'd encourage everyone listening to um, read all of Linda's pieces. Um, Thank you so much and um, join us next episode where we're going to talk to Michael, Michael Milojevic also from Auckland University. And um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, London, and thanks, everybody. Thanks, London. Mate, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.